Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. This is Football Social Daily, the podcast to go to for fans of the Premier League because we don't just make a new show once a week. We don't just do previews and match reports. We bring you the latest news from the English top flight every single day of the year. Even though the Christmas period is fast approaching, we'll be here right the way through the festivities. I'm Jim Salverson and on today's podcast, we'll be picking our heroes and villains from the weekend's action, which today includes sendings off, dubious penalties and stunning performances from low knees. And also, as we creep towards that January transfer window, it's going to be opening soon. It's time we started taking some of the rumours on the back page of the papers seriously, with Newcastle looking to spend a few of their buckets of cash on defensive reinforcements, and Leeds United looking to add firepower as they try and move up the table. Alongside me on the podcast today, we've got Niall McCorn. How are you doing, Niall? I'm good. Happy Monday morning, boys. Wonderful Monday. And Joel, how are you doing, mate? <laughs> Yeah, wonderful Monday. Hello, everyone. <laughs> everyone loves a Monday. Right, if you want a full breakdown of the weekend's games, you can check that out on yesterday's podcast. Fergal, Jay and Adam wrapping up the weekend's action. But we're going to pick out the really juicy details as we discuss the highs and lows, the heroes and villains from the weekend just gone. And we're going to start off with heroes. And Norma Korn... Okay, well, I've got a really nice, light-hearted story for my hero, and it doesn't actually come from any specific player or manager or even moment, I suppose you could say, from the Premier League games this weekend. It goes to a Brentford supporter, uh, a lady who decided she was going to go to her first ever game watching Brentford. Now, we've obviously had a tough two years with coronavirus, and it's affected everyone in different ways. But this lady sadly lost her husband to COVID-19 during the depth of the pandemic. And he was a lifelong Brentford supporter. And she'd never been to a football match in her life, but he had a season ticket and he went every single week. And Brentford got promoted. I think just after he had passed away, Brentford got promoted to the Premier League. So sadly for him, he never got to watch his beloved bees in the top flight and actually make a real good fist of it like they have done this season. They've been excellent, I think. Great value since their promotion. They've stuck to their values and um, they they look like they could well be clear of the drop zone uh, come Christmas, which is always a positive sign. But for some reason, this lady felt compelled at the weekend to go and watch her first ever Brentford game. And speaking to a national radio station, she called in, explained the situation and she absolutely loved her experience. And I think that is... That is an, it's just a beautiful story, a brilliant story, a little light to have come out of a lot of darkness in the last 18 months to two years. So Brentford are my heroes slash this lady who's gone to her first game supporting Brentford is my hero because of that exact reason. They won the game 2-1. They beat Watford. By all accounts, the atmosphere was supposed to be brilliant. She was welcomed in. It was a family atmosphere, a friendly atmosphere. And that's what football's all about. You know, there's a campaign going on at the moment that football is for everyone and football is for everyone, whether it's 
to do with the color of your skin or your orientation sexually. It, it doesn't matter what you are, who you are. Football is a game that everyone should be able to enjoy, regardless of age, creed, color, etc. And I think this is a perfect story to highlight that. So my heroes are Brentford Football Club, not so much for what they did on the pitch, but for the way that they welcomed this lady in and her as well for her bravery in taking on a new challenge, stepping into the unknown and almost paying tribute to, to her late husband who died during the pandemic. So that was a nice little story, I thought. And there was loads of games across the weekend, some really bright moments from on the field when it comes to the action that we saw. But that really stood out for me as a little bit of a, of a moment which tugged on the old heartstrings. So that would be my choice for this week's hero, I think. What a nice story. And I think Brentford do deserve a lot of credit, not just because of their performances in the Premier League, as you say, clear of the drop zone, well clear of the drop zone, up in 10th at the moment. They've pulled some real results this season. But also, I think they are considered one of the more welcoming clubs in the Premier League. And I don't know whether that's because of the history and how they've developed over the last few years and they've got this kind of new club mentality, this feeling that they are kind of a new entity. So you've got this more family crowd, I guess, rather than the kind of diehard supporters that maybe aren't always the most desirable for football clubs so I think they do deserve a lot of credit for everything they've done not just this season but in the previous seasons leading up to this point as well yeah I, I totally agree with that and I think everyone can respect the Brentford model you know we talk about it often on the podcast Moneyball, they call it don't they and and the way that they've kind of well they don't call it that well, they hate that they hate the fact their recruitment's <laughs> referred to as Moneyball. but that's that's the way we understand uh, yeah it. when i say when i say they call it i mean we call it that um <laughs> but certainly that's the that's the method that you know the term that's been coined for that method and you know they analyze the data and assess the data in a different way to every other club and it stood stood them in in such good stead so yeah, full credit to Brentford for both their off-field and on-field model. They are a community club. I think the move from their stadium, Griffin Park, to the new Brentford Community Stadium was an interesting one. I personally loved Griffin Park. It was an old-school ground, boxed in in West London, beautiful surroundings in amongst the houses with a pub on each corner. Um, quite a gentrified little little stadium as well. Uh, I really enjoyed Brentford Stadium but the new one I haven't been to it yet um, but it seems to have taken on a similar charm albeit in a much fresher and newer guise than the old stadium so um, it was it was lovely to see Christine the Brentford fan talking about how she went to her first ever football match and her her late husband Peter was there with her in spirit she said so brilliant stuff from Brentford on and off the field and um, they're almost like everyone's second club this season aren't they with the way that they've gone about things so wish them and Christine all the best I mean it had to be everyone's second club at the weekend because it was Brentford versus Watford so bees versus wasps and anyone who's supporting wasps when it's bees versus wasps is just a bit of a wrong one to be honest with you if you've got to support bees in that scenario uh, let's go on to my hero of the weekend because I'm going for Conor Gallagher because he is taking his chance on loan at Crystal Palace with both hands. I think quite often we see players go out on loan from a big club, a Chelsea or a Man City or a Manchester United, and they just don't perform. And I don't really know the reason for that. I don't know whether it's because the player doesn't feel like they're playing for their future at the club or don't feel like they need to impress the manager because in 12 months they're going to be going back to their parent club. But here's a loan that is really working. And I think Conor Gallagher deserves a lot of credit for making it work because he's smashing it out of the park at the moment. And I don't know where Palace would be without him in the team because he just seems to be the player that gets them going at the moment. 15 games, six goals, three assists in the Premier League. But I guess we don't just need to give credit to Conor Gallagher for the way he's playing. Patrick Vieira deserves a whole load of credit for the way he's managing Gallagher and giving him the freedom on the pitch to do what he's doing. And also, whoever worked on that loan in the first place, whoever spotted Conor Gallagher as a potential signing in the Premier League, because I don't remember him really being talked about before this season, but someone spotted him, someone scouted him, someone's recruited him, and they deserve a lot of credit as well. But I think Conor Gallagher could be, Joel, the signing of the season this season, even though it's not a permanent, it's just a loan. Yeah, I was just going to say... Um because my hero is going to be Patrick Vieira as well. But just going on the back of that, I mean, he's got more goals in the Premier League than Mason Mount this season. And considering he'll probably be going back to Chelsea, I can't see Chelsea allowing Palace to even get on the negotiating table when it comes to the summer uh, to get him on a permanent transfer. Because he, he kind of looks... Obviously, I'm not saying he's going to go back to Chelsea and 
get straight into that squad because it's a very competitive squad and at Palace he's got you know maybe a different role than he'd have under Tuchel but he's been really impressive this season he's at, he's he's winning games for them which I think has been a, a very big difference but like you said, I mean, before the season started, I don't think many, apart from maybe Chelsea fans, would have heard a great deal about him. Um, and then suddenly, a few months later, he, find, he found himself in Southgate's England squad, um, which, you know, under Patrick Vieira as well, which I'll go into in a minute. But considering like the start he had to the Premier League and how everyone thought he was going to be the next like De Burr, not winning many games, and suddenly he has all these different players like Mark Guayhi, who he also got from Chelsea for a good twenty million. Um, and obviously Gallagher on loan. I think it's just been really um, clever recruitment rather than kind of doing these very unknown signings from abroad, which are very hit and miss that a lot of Premier League clubs have been typical to do in the past. You know, where they spend like 20, 30, 40 million on someone and then they end up selling them after two years for about 10 million. And considering how good English young players are at the moment, I think it is a, it's a it's a wise strategy to do just because a lot of these big clubs, obviously they've got their hands in so many different areas when it comes to recruitment and young players. I know, you know, the likes of Chelsea and Arsenal, they've got a huge network in London, which has brought up some of the best players that are in the England squad at the moment. Um, so I think it is wise for some of these clubs like Palace, uh, like Brights and like West Ham to just kind of poach these players who are never going to get games at um, the likes of the big London clubs. And it's kind of paying dividends a little bit now. But unfortunately for Palace, it's kind of um, the, the, it's the, their own failure is going to be the downfall. I mean, sorry, their own success is going to be the downfall because they're not going to get anywhere near signing him mm-hmm. on a permanent uh, deal. What do you think, Niall? Do you, think, you don't think? I was going to say, what do you think? Do you think Gallagher goes back to Chelsea and probably doesn't get that much game time, even though he's developed hugely over the 12 months? Or does he stay at Palace where it's working for him? Or does a team like Arsenal potentially come in and snap him up? Well, we've seen, as Joel says, some of the lone players that have gone out to lesser, with no disrespect to those teams, Premier League clubs in the recent couple of seasons and you know someone like Joe Willock for example is a, is a great example of that who went to Newcastle United and did brilliantly and was signed on a permanent contract I think with Conor Gallagher people forget he was actually on loan at West Brom last season 32 appearances I think it was in all competitions and West Brom obviously got relegated under first Slavin Bilic and then Sam Allardyce he won their young player of the year but he wasn't really shining, even though he won their Young Player of the Year and actually did okay at West Brom. I almost forgot that he was there. But I think it goes to show that if you loan a player from a club in the right system, how much more they can shine. And just the development of this player in 18 months or, or two years has been excellent. So in all fairness to him, I think that he's proven that played in the right system and in the right way, which Patrick Vieira has obviously done, you can get you know, more juice from the squeeze. And it was obviously a toil for Conor Gallagher in a West Brom team last season, trying to stay up and fight every week. Um, You know, I think he bounced back as well brilliantly at the weekend uh, or recently against Everton, just because against Manchester United, Gallagher was completely overrun in the middle of the park at Old Trafford a couple of match days ago. And he had a really poor game. It's the worst I've seen him all season. Um, But it's testament to him as a young player to, after having a bad game, and being completely outclassed to come back and perform in the way he did. So, yeah, well done to Conor Gallagher. I think with Chelsea, you know, if you look at their midfield, Jorginho, you've got who was so crucial to them at the weekend, by the way, against Leeds. N'Golo Conte is one of the best to do it in the last 10 years. I don't think many people can argue that. And Kovacic is someone who's not a bad option to have either in the middle of the park. Someone who's won Champions Leagues with Real Madrid. So, I definitely think that Chelsea's midfield is going to be a difficult nut to crack. You know, then you've got the other midfielders, the more dynamic ones, players like Mason Mount, like Joel picked out. And where does Gallagher slot into that? He plays quite a central position, but he's adding goals to his game now and also getting involved up in the final third. So could he be foil for Mason Mount? Could he be a replacement for Mason Mount if Mount isn't performing or Mount's injured, for example? Maybe he can fit that role and, you know, he won't cost Chelsea anything because he's their player. You think of the two players that Chelsea have got out on loan in that midfield position. It's Billy Gilmore at Norwich, who wins so many plaudits for his performances for Scotland. But Norwich have been, aside from against Manchester United at the weekend when they actually looked all right, they've not been great this season. And, the, you know, being bottom of the table shows that. It's Billy Gilmore 
is he shown enough at Norwich? Has he been able to show enough at Norwich? Or does he need another loan to a, to a more established club next season? Much like Gallagher's gone from West Brom to Palace and being able to show a little bit more what he can do in a, in a different style of play in a more free-flowing team. Does Gilmore need that to prove that he's good enough to break into the Chelsea team? Listen, these are all decisions that Thomas Tuchel will have to make. But as good as Conor Gallagher's been this season, winning his first England cap, being crucial to what Palace do, Crystal Palace was 16th heading into this weekend's fixtures. And they've not been bad at all, this campaign. They've played really well, but they keep conceding late goals. Um, you know, they conceded a late goal to Brighton. They conceded uh, late goals in other games as well, I think to Leeds too. So, you know, you're looking at a team who, despite the fact that they've done well under Patrick Vieira, that they're still not up and around where they really want to be. So uh, I think there's question marks over whether Gallagher will get a game in the first team. I don't think that Chelsea will be adverse to selling him just simply because of the quality of the midfield that they've got. As good as Gallagher's been, is he going to get in ahead of Kovacic, Kante or Jorginho? I think that's a big question in itself. Well, let's talk about the other manager rather than Thomas Tuchel, who potentially was behind the Gallagher transfer in the first place, the Gallagher loan signing. Joel, you said Patrick Vieira is your hero of the weekend. Yeah, um, I just like I just remember at the start of the season when he had about one win in his first six Premier League games. And I remember so many pundits, so many journalists and even fans saying how, you know, he's not the right fit for Palace and he's going to have a record like Frank De Boer did when he was at Palace. And I, I, I was kind of wary with that because he did a decent job when he was at Nice in France. Um, and also, I think he was at New York as well um, when he first started out his managerial career. But... He, he was just he was very unlucky this season. I think he's got about seven draws in the league, which is the third highest in the league. They just couldn't convert wins to uh, they couldn't convert draws to wins, and it wasn't due to playing badly. It was just the fact that they just couldn't close out games. They conceded a hell of a lot of last minute goals this season, but now, especially uh, yesterday's game, uh, sorry Saturday or Sunday's yeah Sunday's game against uh, Everton. And the three-one win. I mean, the players, like especially Conor Gallagher, came up trumps in terms of getting the victory. It was just a case of goals. I mean, we saw that when they defeated Manchester City um, a couple of months ago, and that's City's first win at home in a long, long time. And he, he really just he showed his tactical nous in that game, and that's when I really started to kind of believe that he's someone who could turn out to be a really good manager. Just because some sides go to City and the kind of waiting for the pummeling and they're just kind of holding in the game as long as they can and really delaying the inevitable whereas he really set up his side so, so tactically well where he was doing counter-attacks having Zaha and um, Gallagher being the two outlets to really hurt their full-backs when they went up and it was the same again yesterday he, he's just especially when it comes to like goals conceded they've conceded very very the same amount as Manchester United and Arsenal uh, and less than nearly half the other side of the table so it just shows that he's got a really good defensive unit at the moment and in terms of his recruitment I think it's been absolutely spot on obviously in terms of Gallagher uh, Mark Guayhi who hadn't even played a Chelsea first team game and they signed him for 20 odd mil yeah and a lot of people raised eyebrows with that because I mean who wouldn't if you're paying 20 million for an unproven Premier League player but it's like I said before, these young English talents, I think it is worth a huge punt on every single one of them. Um, and like Niall was saying in terms of, you know, failed loans, it's definitely not the be-all and end-all because I think the first name that came to mind was Serge Nabry, who went to West Brom and now he's one of the best players in Europe at Bayern. So um, it, it, it's just testament to how well they've recruited. And I think Roy Hodgson left him a really nice set of players to go on for. But, you know, his recruitment in terms of signing Edouard, who for the last three years has been one of the best players in Scotland, one of the top scorers and no other Premier League club wanted to take a punt on him. Um, and he's looking like he's becoming more and more influential on that side. Um, but yeah, the two big ones are obviously Gwehi and Gallagher who've been the main key components of that side. Like you don't really hear of Wilfred Zaha too much anymore. It's more Gallagher and Gwehi, which kind of shows just how well they've recruited at the moment. And, Although it's quite difficult in the mid-table at the moment in terms of, you know, one loss can take you down to 16th, one win can take you up to 9th. It's, it's a very big pendulum swing at the moment where every manager, if he wins, is the best manager in the world and when he loses, he's, he's you know, he's got pressure on. So 
I think that with Vieira, as long as he starts converting these draws into wins now, I think they could finish in, in at least like 10th or, 10th or 9th, I would say. He's just, I think he's really proven his worth a hell of a lot, especially after such a tricky start at the start of this season. Uh, just basically what you're saying, Joel, is don't go on loan to West or, Brom. Or, yeah, pretty much, because they just don't, it's not the environment for it. Or do go on loan to West <laughs> Brom, because it just prepares you for the worst. Maybe that's the scenario, like after West Brom, everything <laughs> yeah. else seems easy. I mean, we've got Patrick Vieira here. I think pretty much everyone doubted going into this job. I must admit, I didn't think he was the right choice. I thought it was nailed on relegation for Crystal Palace when he came in, not just because of his unproven status in the game at that point, despite those spells at Nice and despite the spells at New York City, like you mentioned, Joel, but because Roy Hodgson had left Crystal Palace in a state where a lot of those players were at the end of their contracts, they were leaving, they were getting on to the last stages of their career. It looked like the squad was going to fall apart, but he's kind of really turned it around and he's established Crystal Palace playing a style of football that a lot of the Crystal Palace fans will be enjoying at the moment. But does that also put them in danger, Joel, of maybe someone coming in and just like we talk about the future of Conor Gallagher, someone will come in and take him because Crystal Palace can't hold on to him. But also like for Patrick Vieira, an Arsenal, for example, that would be the kind of logical scenario that he does another season at Crystal Palace and then replaces Arteta at Arsenal if it doesn't work out there. It might happen in the next month, to be fair. But um, I think, you know, <laughs> I think with, with Palace, with these kind of clubs where they get the lone players, I kind of feel sorry for, them in, for, sorry for them in a way just because they are pretty much like development clubs where, you know, Chelsea in this situation are in an absolute win-win scenario because if Gallagher ends up playing absolutely crap they're, they're fine with it they'll find him a new club if he if he's doing what he's doing now in terms of becoming you know one of the best young players in the league at the moment they've not even developed him and they could probably sell him for 30 million around to any club in the league right now um and that's the only issue is the fact that palace are developing him he ends up becoming a really pivotal player in the side they probably won't be able to keep him then Vieira has to then recruit someone who is going to have as much of an impact as Gallagher as Gallagher's having which is not an easy task to do at all that changes his whole team around it changes his whole tactics around um, and then you know each season to the next looks entirely different just because if Palace have an amazing season and they finish sixth uh, sorry not sixth like eighth or ninth it's clearly showing that their team is effective and they're going to have bigger teams looking at their club looking at the team thinking you know we could poach a couple of these players Mark Guayhi for example there's a big shortage of top quality centre-backs and if he keeps developing the way he is you know it, more often than not he will get poached by one of the bigger sides and then he has to go back to the drawing board again Um so you know you can take these these like moments and seasons with a pinch of salt but that's that's the kind of state with these clubs, isn't it? It's the fact that if you're not one of the established top seven, you're always at the mercy of them. Um, and you kind of just have to enjoy season to season and not take it for granted because, you know, the next season you could have a whole team dismantled, as we saw with Leicester. And to credit to them, they've managed to uh, reform really well. But that's just testament to recruitment. And if Palace can keep recruiting like they have this year, then they shouldn't have any issues. And the best base model you can go off is Leicester, where they lost the likes of Mares and Kante and they've replaced them amazingly well. Um, so yeah, recruitment is everything for these kind of smaller clubs, quote brackets. We'll do the flip side of heroes in a moment. We'll talk about our villains from the weekend's action. But speaking of heroes for the time being, Beer 52, they are the Christmas hero you need because they're handing out free beer this year. And not just the usual eight beers you get when you sign up to Beer 52 because you listen to Football Social Daily. They're sorting you out. We're sorting you out with 10 free beers in the run up to Christmas. All you have to do is go to beer52.com forward slash football and pay $5.95. That covers the postage and you'll get a free case of beer. You need to do it before the 17th of December and you get those two extra beers to make it 10 rather than the eight, along with some beer snacks and a magazine to tell you all about the beers you're drinking as well. Beer52.com forward slash football. After that point, after you've signed up for your free case paying the postage, you will be subscribed to a monthly beer club that costs you £24 a month but you're not tied in you can cancel you can leave at any time before you even get your first subscription and the beer you've got remains just that it remains free and it remains yours it's ideal just before Christmas this because not only does it help you deal with those guests who are going to be popping around and wanting to drink something 
that's not maybe your normal drinks that you might be offering so you've got a supply that you can offer them but you can also keep it to yourself you can get the beer that you want be it a light beer or a dark beer or a mixed case whatever is your fancy you can get that and if that doesn't work for you then why not get it for your dad or your uncle or your granddad because you know he's a really awkward sod to buy for and it's better than getting a pair of socks so if any of those tickle your fancy biff2.com forward slash football you can take advantage of the deal we've sorted out with beer 52 for you by going to that address and getting your 10 free beers biff52.com forward slash football right next on football social daily we're talking villains from the weekend football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We've done our heroes from the weekend's Premier League action. We're now going to talk about our villains, the bad guys. And I think I'm going to go first on this one because I know we've picked different scenarios from the same game, Niall, for our two on this. So we'll do ours back to back. But I've picked Andrew Mariner, who was the VAR official in Manchester City versus Wolves this weekend, who not only handed Raheem Sterling his 100th Premier League goal, which was fair play to Raheem Sterling, 100 goals, it was a penalty, but it shouldn't have been a penalty. In a weekend where we saw a load of the top teams claim wins that maybe they didn't deserve with late penalties, Man City was one of those in this game against Wolverhampton Wanderers for a handball that wasn't really a handball. So there were two penalties in the game. They were very similar in terms of handballs. One where the defender had his arms kind of behind his back, but arguably it hit his shoulder because he was moving towards the ball. But the other one where Joel Martinho had his arms in the air, the ball strikes him, but it kind of strikes him in the armpit on the rib cage. And you can't really blame John Moss, the referee, for getting this wrong because in real time, 100%, it looks like a penalty because of Joel Martinho's arm position. It's raised and that's always going to be a risk for a defender. But when you watch the replays, I think it quickly becomes apparent that it doesn't hit his arm. It hits his armpit, maybe, or his rib cage, And I think that's pretty clear. And what annoyed me about this was the VAR admission after the game, who kind of admitted they got it wrong, but said they couldn't find the right angle. They couldn't find the right camera to prove that it wasn't a handball. And my opinion here is VAR is there to make decisions better. And you can kind of excuse it when things are got wrong or incorrect and there's a matter of opinion in there, which kind of can happen with a lot of penalties when it's a tackle, whether a player's making a challenge, whether a player's dived. You can understand there is going to be mistakes made there because there is an element of it being a grey area. It's not always black and white. A handball is black and white. And here we've got a scenario where it was got wrong. VARs admit it's got it wrong. And if they are going to get that kind of decision wrong, then we come back to the question of what's the point in VAR in the first place? For me, now this isn't the kind of decision that they should be getting wrong. And it's cost Wolverhampton Wanderers a valuable point in this one. Yeah, John Moss copped a lot of flack in this game and it kind of latches on to the villain that I'm going to choose as well. But before I come on to that, I think you're right. I think that when it comes to VAR, there's always going to be an element of subjectivity. And I think people were spun a little bit of a lie when VAR was first introduced. I mean, the amount of people that have done a U-turn, particularly those in the media that I've seen, they were banging the drum on technology saying we need VAR, the referees are shocking, the decisions are getting, we're getting them wrong all the time, we need technology to help the referees. Technology has been brought in and now these people are complaining that VAR is terrible and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the game. You know, where's where's some of the the humility where's some of the people that suggested VAR was the best thing for football and are now coming out and, and are completely against it without admitting the fact that they've changed their mind you know listen we, we just spoke five minutes ago about Patrick Vieira and uh, and you both admitted that you, you felt that Patrick Vieira wasn't up to the task and you happily admitted that you were proved wrong why is no one doing the same about VAR you know why is nobody saying VAR seemed like a good idea at the time but we've decided now that probably it wasn't and you know that sounds like another huge thing that happened in recent years that I won't go into that (laughs) that seemed like a good idea at the time which now probably isn't but that's um, not for many people well uh, for about 51% of people (laughs) precisely Uh, but that's beyond the point and I think the thing with VARs is, is what we need to be aware of is you know technology there's always going to be issues with technology I mean we saw it 
during Project Restart in the summer of 2020 when we tried to finish off the 2019-20 season when COVID first hit. And that game, Aston Villa against Sheffield United and the goal line technology wasn't working. And lo and behold, there was a goal line technology decision that was needing to be made. And it wasn't able to be made because the technology wasn't working. And I think you're going to get that. There's going to be a little bit of that with VAR. I think people need to appreciate that the cameras might not work all the time. You know, there might be issues. And if VAR are scrambling around trying to find a camera angle that doesn't exist or isn't working, then there's not a lot more that they can do. They can only work on on what they've got. So I definitely think that that needs to be taken into consideration when it comes to VAR, particularly the broadcast element of it. You know, cameras and technology can be temperamental. Um, With the camera thing, Niall, though, because the camera angles were there because we were shown the camera angles there on Match of the Day in the evening. So we know that footage existed. Do you think we've kind of put VAR under extra pressure with because there was a lot of noise last season about it taking too long and disrupting the game. So they've made a conscious effort to make these decisions faster. So if they are looking for the right shot, the right angle, I guess that if the time pressure's there suddenly as well, it makes it less likely that that decision is going to be got right. I know what you're saying, but again, I think that's a matter of opinion. And much like refereeing decisions, we said that VAR is just an enhancement of the referee's opinion being passed on to another referee for a second look. No, the technology doesn't have a brain of its own. There's still a man mm. operating the technology, a referee operating the technology to, to help assist a decision. So effectively, instead of having one referee, you've got two. You know, it's, it's not VAR is guaranteed to make the right decision. It's here's the technology here's the choice you have to make and you know there will still be people who sway one side of a line or another and it's funny you mentioned about the time it takes I recently watched the Aston Villa against Leicester game at Villa Park last weekend I was in the stadium and there was a controversial goal where Kasper Schmeichel had the ball between his hand and the floor and Jacob Ramsey kicked the ball from his underneath his hand and into the goal and at the time it felt like that was a legitimate goal it felt like Schmeichel had dropped it and the goal should stand. Yeah. Obviously, Michael Oliver, who was the referee on that day, had someone in his ear saying, you need to take a look at this. And it must have felt like it was maybe 20 seconds later, he was over at the monitor. And then another 20 seconds later, he came back and made the decision. Now that's 40 seconds. Now to me, broadcasting in the ground, that went in a flash. That didn't feel like it took long at all for them to come to a decision. I imagine to the Aston Villa supporters or the Leicester supporters, who have far more riding on that emotionally, you know, when it comes to their concentration levels and, and focusing on the game and what it means to them. That must have felt like an eternity for both sets of supporters. But for me, as yeah. someone who was, you know, relatively neutral, so to speak, in the ground, it didn't feel like it took that long. So I think that there's an element of opinion and unconscious bias when it comes to that as well. You know, you know, when when your team's got a penalty, say in the 90th minute, you've got a penalty to win the game. You know, that that moment when the ball's on the spot, it might only be 10 seconds, but it feels like a 10 years, you know, because you're emotionally invested in the game. And I think that there's an element of that as well. You know, it feels like long when it actually probably isn't that long. So I think there's so many question marks we've still got over VAR. It's been in for three seasons now and it's still not that great. Um, I don't think if you got rid of it tomorrow, I don't think you'd uh, you'd, you'd miss it that much. I'll be perfectly honest. Um and I think part of the reason for that is the referees in this country just aren't quite good enough. And that's something that needs to be addressed fundamentally. You know, the whole point of bringing VAR in was to help make the referees uh, life easier. But what they should have been doing is focusing on the root of the issue, which was the poor standard of officiating. You know, and I've, I've had conversations with people about how do you make referees better? You know, all referees are full time. They get paid a decent wage. They do fitness tests. They, you know, they they sit in front of screens and do research and, and, and try and, you know, watch decisions back and see what, what they can improve on and where they can change their minds and stuff like that. But you can't ever replicate a match situation. It's not like in training where you can get 11 v 11. You know, you can have the reserve team playing against the first team having a practice match. OK, yeah, it's not quite the same, but it's at least similar. How does a referee practice refereeing football matches? You know, you can only referee one game a week, two games a week. You can only do it when it happens. You can't practice being a referee. You know, there's, there's nothing to substitute that in the middle experience, so to speak. So I think that that's a question that will rumble on in the next 10 years of football. The standard of refereeing has always been a dubious point in the game and always will be, regardless of technology.
Yeah, I actually think it's part of the game, like bad refereeing decisions. And I made this point at the time about VAR. I don't, I don't necessarily mind mistakes being made. I think we've just compounded those mistakes by adding in VAR because it has. They've tried to put a scientific black and white yes or no twist on something that is fundamentally about opinions and objectivity. But anyway, I know you're one hundred percent. I know your villain call, Niall, is uh, connected to refereeing decisions in this particular game. So we'll move on to that quickly. Yeah, and like I say, John Moss was the referee for the Wolves versus Man City game, the game that you've picked up on a moment ago. And my villain would be uh Raul Jimenez for picking up two yellow cards in I think thirty one seconds at the end of the first half in just what was a, a very stupid series of events. First of all you know, there's question marks over the referee. Raul Jimenez is tracking back, trying to chase down Rodri in the centre circle, has a little nibble at him, misses the ball. Rodri stumbles a little bit, doesn't go to ground. And the referee decides that that's a yellow card. Now, that's the questionable part for me. That's questionable. The referee's decision to give Jimenez a yellow card is arguable. I didn't think it was a booking. I'm sure there are a number of Man City fans that think it is a booking. That's just the way football goes. It was a harsh yellow. It was yellow. a harsh yellow, in my opinion. Some people might not think it is. And we're down the rabbit hole again of... You know, refereeing is all about opinion and it always has been and always will be. But regardless of that, John Moss has made his call. Yellow card. Now you're 30 seconds from half time. You're 30 seconds from half time. You've just been booked. Man City go to take the free kick. And Jimenez, instead of getting 10 yards away from the ball or 9.15 metres, whatever metric unit you use, <laughs> um, you know, he, he didn't he didn't do so. He just stood three yards away from um, Rodri and decided to block the ball and I've seen a load of people suggest that the referee needed to use common sense here sending off Jimenez ruins the game sorry it's not the referee's choice to make common sense it's not his prerogative to use common sense it's Raul Jimenez's prerogative to use common sense that's his responsibility the referee has told him to get back and he hasn't done it he's blocked a quick free kick and he gets a second yellow within 30 seconds of his first. And he gets sent off. Wolves are down to 10 men. Half time against Manchester City. And it is a mountain to climb. And that is purely and simply Raul Jimenez's fault. For the second yellow, there is no question. People saying that the referee needed to use some common sense. All right. I understand where people are coming from because it ruined the game. The game isn't about being ruined for one person or another. The game is about making the right decision. In the referee's mind, you know, the referee is hell-bent on making the right decision. And in that situation, it's John Moss who wants to make the right decision. These referees are assessed and scrutinised every game. There is an assessor in the stands of every Premier League game who will meet with the refereeing team, the, the match officials, after each game and talk through what they did well and what they didn't do well. And they grade them. These referees, they're on a grading system. So I think people forget that. And if he had just randomly let a yellow card offence go, he would have got it in the neck from his assessor. And the problem for me is not John Moss not using his common sense. The reason Jimenez is the villain is because he gives the referee a decision to make. John Moss won't book him if he doesn't do that stupid act. And whether that's the referee needing to apply some common sense or not, I think that is immaterial. The issue, the root problem, is Jimenez trying to block a free kick from three yards when he's just been booked 25 seconds before. That is stupidity. So for me, Jimenez has to be the villain. I really like him. I think his recovery from injury has been more than admirable. I'm still waiting to watch that documentary called Code Red, um, produced by Wolverhampton Wanderers, which looks brilliant. I've heard really good things about it, about the Jimenez story and his recovery from injury. It involves his family and some of the people involved in the incident at the time. Really looking forward to watching that. Haven't seen it yet. But despite all of those things and despite my admiration for him, stupid, idiotic, deserving of a red card and my villain for this week. I'm 100% in agreement and particularly how important Jimenez is for that Wolves team. He shouldn't be making that kind of decision. And I thought it was just petulant as well to be leaving the pitch and, and applauding the Wolverhampton Wanderers fans like he did because he must have known he'd made a mistake in that instance. He must have known he'd been petulant and he should have been bowing his head in shame rather than applauding the fans who ultimately he just screwed over because he lost Wolverhampton Wanderers that game. But let's move on to your villain of the piece, Joel. Uh, it would just be Arsenal as a football club, to be honest. Um... Agreed, right, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, I'm just kind of baffled at their inability to pick a good captain 
because I think the last three that they've had, if you just go through them, I think the last good one that they had, like the truly good one, is probably Thierry Omri. If you go through them, you had Koscielny, where when he left, he did a video with Bordeaux where he took off his Arsenal shirt and had a Bordeaux shirt underneath it. I mean, this is their club captain. Then you had um, Xhaka, who was the next guy in line, who ended up getting booed off the pitch at the Emirates. I mean, what what player hasn't got booed off the pitch there? But he got booed off the pitch and started, you know, giving it all these hand gestures to the Arsenal fans. And I don't know if he took his shirt off and threw it to the crowd. And then you have Aubameyang this weekend, who was kind of the centre stage of all the pre-match and post-match talk. Um, you know, obviously he's their club captain. He's their top goal scorer from last season and he was absent and every time Arteta was asked the question he just kept saying disciplinary you know we can't accept it and then it's been found out that he went to France uh, to get his mother from France and then he returned a little later than was expected which break, broke the uh, COVID-19 rules and then he was sent away from the training ground um, and then apparently he got a tattoo in London like all these different things, it just kind of epitomizes Arsenal as a football club. They just they're like that friend you can't they can't keep you know that friend who just can't seem to find a good girlfriend. They just keep going round in circles <laughs> and just can't retain one. This is Arsenal. It's the fact that they just they don't understand and can't pick the right characters to lead their club. And this is why I say the last real captain they had was probably Henri and he left in what, two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven. That's a long time ago. I mean, obviously you had these bit part ones in between like Thomas Vermaelen and uh, I don't know if Aaron Ramsey had a little stint at times, but they're not asked, they're not captain material. And when you go through the years, Arsenal have always had big leaders, big characters like Patrick Vieira, Thierry Henry, um, Tony Adams, like all these guys, the guys who you would typically, you know, associate with Arsenal captains and the last, they just have an inability. They're picking the wrong characters, the wrong leaders. They're picking people who aren't even leaders. I mean, when you've got to look to Aubameyang, who's your club captain, I don't know why he's been picked. He doesn't strike me instantly as the kind of player who is going to lead your, your team. Um, I don't know if he's... It's because he scored loads of goals. Yeah, well, did that's score loads of goals. That, that's the only reason, isn't it? Because, you know, you're talking about being a leader. I don't think it's a leader of men, so to speak, or a leader in terms of the vocal side of it and organisation. It's just leading by example. I mean, you could say the same thing about Harry Kane, I guess. You know, he's, he's a captain because he scores loads of goals. You know, he, he leads by professional example rather than, you know, kind of that more traditional aspect of a leader you know you think back like what you were saying Joel Vieira and Roy Keane and these sorts of players they not only led by professional example but also with the kind of the leadership attributes on the pitch as in you know rallying the troops so to speak so yeah I think that's the only reason Aubameyang's been at least at least with Harry Kane he's been doing it for five six years so I think you know I, I could I could say yeah that's worthy of a captain he's kind of the face of Tottenham whereas Aubameyang had you know one and a half seasons two seasons of good goal scoring form it, it just seems like he's plucked a, a magic ticket out of a hat and thought Aubameyang's a good captain for me rather than actually assessing the person he is but you look at the Arsenal team I'm not saying he's a bad person but I mean in terms of different things you look at the Arsenal team and you go who is the natural leader who is the natural captain within that Arsenal team and I don't think there is one I think that's part of the problem with the club as it is and as it has been, is they don't seem to have that leader on the pitch. And I actually think Xhaka was probably the closest you get to that because he's the man who has that winning mentality and he drives the team forward. But there's very little... I mean, there's some brilliant young players in that Arsenal team. But in terms of kind of the established pros, there aren't that many. Well, according to the useful tool known as the internet, apparently Aubameyang <laughs> is obviously the captain. Lacazette is the vice-captain who's out of contract in the summer and will be leaving the club. Why is he anywhere near the vice-captaincy? Yeah, Granit Xhaka's the third captain, and I think as someone who plays in a certain way, you can understand Xhaka's captaincy, but gets sent off all the time and is prone to making mistakes. And fourth captain is Rob Holding, who might be an interesting choice, but I mean, he doesn't strike me as a particular leader. So, you know, you look at some of the better players... You know, like Kieran Tierney, would he be a good captain? Yeah, maybe, but he just doesn't play because he's injured all the time. Ben White's new to the club. Is he captain material? Thomas Partey, again, is someone who maybe isn't quite consistent enough. The Brazilian defender Gabriel is someone who might work as a captain, but I think you're right. You look at the team, Jim, and there's a lot of players who you're just not sure. There's no obvious kind of 
choice for captaincy. And I think that that's an issue that Arsenal have to address. I mean, I've seen teams that pass the armband around before to kind of share the responsibility. But is it really that important, I suppose, is my question. How, how much does a, how much yeah, does was, a captaincy mean? Is, is it more than, is it, is it not just an armband? Does it, does it really know, make yeah, a difference? I, I was, I, it's the bloke who goes and does the coin toss at the start of the game and gets a little C next to his name on every team sheet. I think it, I think it depends how it gets, how it's managed within the club. Like you look at a team, I look at my team, West Ham, for example, and there you've got a club captain and you've got, a, is it club captain and team captain, isn't it? So Declan Rice is the captain on the pitch and he acts like a captain. And you see him on social media bonding with the young players that are coming through and he kind of brings that dressing room together on and off the pitch he's kind of yeah. like the character that people go to and then you've got mark noble who is the club captain and again he's kind of like he is a figurehead he's a representation of that team he has that connection with the fans but he also talks to the media and he's also that kind of statesman for the club and i think that that's traditionally what you associate a captain's role with I think now, particularly when you look at someone like Arsenal, it's just seen as a, a kind of a, I want to say reward, but it's not even really a reward. It's just kind of like a pat on the back. It's you've been here a long time. Look, we're negotiating your contract. How about we make you the captain? I'm sure it comes with an extra couple of grand in your pay packet. It's that kind of attitude. So I guess it's how the club manage the captaincy and what importance it has to the club depends on the relevance of the captain. I understand. It's more of a sentimental thing, though, I think. I think people get caught up. It's, it's one of these things that people get hung up on. You know, Arsenal need a good captain. Do they? They, they just need to be a better team. You know, the captaincy will come as a product of that. You know, finding a good captain isn't going to solve Arsenal's problems of inconsistency coming up against the better teams when they get whooped every mm. time. You know, they seem to play well against the, the, you know, the bottom 14 Premier League teams. But when they come up against anyone who's remotely challenging for the title, they seem to get a spanking. You know, that's an issue they need to solve, not who the captain is. I don't think that's going to change anything. You, know, you can give the captain to Gunnosaurus, you know, make him the captain. And, you know, <laughs> is that going to change actions on the field? I'm not sure yeah. it will. So it'd be a better scenario. Yeah, well, precisely. But it's just one of those where you kind of have to take it with a pinch of salt. I think that's just my personal opinion. I understand the value of captaincy and it probably means more to supporters than it does to the actual players mm. and that's an issue in itself I think well we'll remain well, this comes off the back of an Arsenal win by the way which point out they won 3-0 at the weekend yeah, well done Arsenal yeah. well done. <laughs> Aubameyang missing obviously whether he retains the Arsenal captaincy or not I think it's his second or third disciplinary in a very short period of time we'll have to wait and see whether he retains that captain's armband we're going to talk about comings and goings next a very quick look at the transfer rumours that are adorning the back pages of the papers we'll have a transfer roundup ahead of the January window opening in just a few weeks next on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. 13th of December, which means 17 days until the January transfer window opens and those comings and goings begin. Got a couple of rumours to have a look at at the moment, starting off with Leeds United, who want Chile striker Ben Berenton Diaz from Blackburn. That's according to The Sun. He'll cost around 25 million quid, apparently. I'm going to go to you for this one, Niall, because I think you've probably got more an eye on the <laughs> championship and below than myself and Joel. Is this the kind of player that Marcelo Bielsa wants? What do we know about Diaz? Uh, we, what we know about him is he's, uh, he's a Chile player because his mum was born in the country, or his mum is, is Chilean, I think. Um, so his name's actually Ben Brereton, but he changed his name to Brereton Diaz and um, scored some goals for Blackburn Rovers. And I think football manager helped those in charge of picking the Chile <laughs> national team. Uh, we're, 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 in, we're in trouble if we're all going on football managers. Well, I think football manager, those, uh, those in charge of picking the Chile national team, figured out via football manager that Ben Brereton's mother has Chilean heritage. And so since he changed his name to Ben Brereton Diaz and he got picked for Chile, played in the Copa America for Chile and scored goals for them. And now he's like an absolute icon in, in Chile, which is, which is brilliant for him, um, you know, considering he's just a, a striker for Blackburn Rovers. Um, I shouldn't play down his uh, abilities that much, though, um, despite the fact he does have quite a nice Pepsi commercial 
in Chile off the back of that Copper American uh, appearance. Um, but he's got 26 goals in 87 championship games for Blackburn Rovers, um, which is pretty good. He's, uh, he's a big lad. He's only 22. He's got long hair and a beard and he looks older than he is. Um, put it this way. He used to be a Man United youth player, actually. And um, he's a big lad. He's six foot one, but he's he's also reasonably fleet of foot. Um, he's not like a traditional target man. He's someone who can run channels. He's got He's able to spin defenders. He's someone who is... Um, not not quite like Patrick Bamford. I think he's slightly more physical than Patrick Bamford, but he's someone who's proven that he's able to play in a multifaceted way. And I think that that's what um, Marcelo Bielsa will like. Um, but he's doing well in the championship for Blackburn. I think he's their top scorer this season. He might even be the top scorer in the championship. I'm not 100%. But, um, you know, he's taken that Copper America limelight and turned it into some really positive performances uh, for Blackburn Rovers, yeah, I mean, you look at his goals this season, just looking at it now, 17 goals in 22 games for Blackburn, um, only bettered by Alexander Mitrovic, who's just a bagsman in the championship, who scored 22 goals in 21 games, which is just remarkable. Um, but if you're looking at, on average, goals per 90 minutes, he scores a 0.81 goals every 90 minutes. So you're looking at, you know, just over... Um, or just under, sorry, a goal a game. So that's that's a very good record in the championship. But like we've seen in the past, players play well in the championship, don't always translate to uh, performances in the Premier League. But this is one that, that doesn't surprise me too much. He's got age on his side at 22. He's got international experience. He's been thrust into the limelight. He's dealt with it well. He scored 17 goals before December this season for Blackburn Rovers. So brilliant stuff. And I'd welcome him in the Premier League for sure. Whether he'll go to Leeds or not is another question, but not surprised by these links. Some decent numbers there, but we all know that if you play for Leeds United, you need to do more than just score goals, and that is the Marcelo Bielsa way, which is one of the positives behind having him as your manager, Joel. But does that make future planning difficult? Does it make attracting players to the club difficult? As highly regarded as Marcelo Bielsa is, we know he never commits his future beyond the end of the season. He likes to keep his options open beyond that if he feels he can take the project any further. So does that act as a a kind of obstacle maybe to bringing players on board? Because they don't know who the manager's going to be in the next nine months. Uh, I don't know. I think the players have kind of got used to his way and his method, to be honest. I bet I'm pretty sure they probably just expect him to sign a new contract. But saying that, I mean, is it the be all and end all if he stays or he goes? Because they're only, what, five points from 18th. They're not having the best season so far. Um, I think a big part of that is the fact that, you know, Bamford has been in and out of the side for the majority of the season. Um, And I think they're at a very big risk of losing Rafinha in the summer who's been their top scorer this season um so i think for them it's they're just having kind of that second season syndrome in terms of having that really big motivational burst first season debut premier league season going all out um i don't i don't think i've seen a team get more praised after getting beat 5-1 every single game um i remember after the united game when we beat them i think 5-1 and they got more coverage than we did um so I think for them, it's a case of just his acceptance because he is a great manager and that's the way he operates. And they knew that before they signed him, the fact that he's very um, particular in the way he wants to move forward with his plans because, he, you know, he is, he's, he's getting on a bit as well. So I, I don't, I, for me, I don't think it's the be all and end all if he actually did end up departing. And to be honest, I wouldn't put it past him departing because I, I think at Marseille, he left very abruptly as well. Uh, in his previous job but for Leeds they just I think this season's a case of you know they don't need to look too high I think this is a season of just stability and trying to actually just maintain a position in the league because right now they're getting sucked into um, a bit of a battle at the moment they're not scoring too many which was quite the opposite last year you know I think Bamford got about 15 uh, 10 to 15 in the league last year now they've only got 17 goals so far in 16 which is not good enough at all um the same as Newcastle and we know the situation Newcastle are in at the moment so for me I don't think it's a case for incoming players because you know Leeds I've I would say a, a slight bit of attraction a slight bit 
Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's a case of just stability this year. Serious injury problems continue for Leeds as well. They've just started to get some of their players back and they've got even more injuries to cope out over the Christmas period now as well. Speaking of injuries, well, West Ham are looking at Liverpool's Nat Phillips, 24 years old now, to replace the injured Anglo Mbonga, who is out for the season. His contract is up at the end of the season as well. Liverpool want £10 million for Nat Phillips. That's also according to The Sun. Are you surprised that Phillips hasn't had that move away from Liverpool or even featured more for Liverpool? Because he had that breakthrough season when Virgil van Dijk picked up his season-long injury. Did really well for Liverpool, I thought. But then he's not really kicked on from there, Joel. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a tricky one just because I think he's, he's, a, he's a decent defender, but when you've got a defence that's got the likes of Virgil van Dijk in it and Joel Matip... And obviously, Joe Gomez, when he comes back, he's never, ever going to get a look in. I mean, he was quite solid when he actually had to fill in for Van Dijk. But the quality difference and the the void that he, that Van Dijk left during that period. I mean, Liverpool suffered so big in that period of time. So much so that they needed a bit of a miracle um, towards the end of last season to actually get back into the top four. I think they went on a run of like six defeats um, at home on the bounce which is pretty unheard of for for a team like Liverpool under Klopp as well so I think for West I think for him it's a case of does he want to be the the sideline guy who just fills in for when you know the superstars get injured or does he potentially want to become one of the main figureheads of a side potentially dropping down and I don't think a drop down to West Ham is something that should be you know, negatively looked at just because West Ham are a team on the up at the moment. And with Liverpool, unless you're one of the top five, top 10 defenders in the world, you're not going to get a look in, in that defence. And that's just the kind of reality of these top clubs at the moment in terms of how competitive their uh, starting 11s are. It's just impossible. And, you know, Klopp does like to, and he, Klopp's quite lucky in a way that his starting 11, obviously aside from the kind of anomaly last season where, he just couldn't get catch a break in terms of his injuries. The front line and the mid and the defense rarely gets injured uh, typically, which is so lucky, and that's why he's been able to maintain such a high standard for so many years now. But I think for for Phillips, it would be a good move, and obviously Jim, you'll probably know better than me, but I do think West Ham, if they want to keep this momentum going forward, especially when it gets to the end of December. I do think they're going to need 100%, at least one or two reinforcement reinforcements just because it's very likely that you're going to get more injuries. And the defence is the big part for me, that when you start leaking goals, that's when the kind of dominoes start to fall a little bit. Yeah, some serious injury problems at West Ham at the moment. A lot of defensive players that are out at the moment. The story, interestingly, it's been reported that West Ham are being put off by the £10 million price tag, but I don't know what player you can get for 10 million now it's like it just seems like absolutely nothing for Nat Phillips uh, moving on to Newcastle United Niall and they're looking at Bournemouth Steve Cook after apparently they were priced out of a move for James Tarkowski which doesn't sound like a likely thing considering the funds that are available for Newcastle United this is another one being reported by the Sun but how excited are Newcastle fans going to be about the arrival of Steve Cook when it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the arrival of Kylian Mbappe yeah, it's, this is a weird one. And I think it's just purely because Bournemouth are doing well in the championship this season. Cook's been pretty good, actually, in all fairness to him. but And, and of course, Eddie Howe used to manage Bournemouth. That's probably where the link comes from. But I'm not going to lie. I, I just I just think that this is, this is a sign-in for the championship. This isn't going to be a sign-in that keeps Newcastle in the Premier League. It just isn't. Is that what Newcastle United need to do now? 4-0 they lost at the weekend. Are they now planning for the championship rather than planning for a future in the Premier League? I don't think so. But I think that any player now that they try and target in January will be aware of the fact that they could be signing for a club who are playing championship football next season. Now, there's still a long way to go. And, you know, Eddie Howe is a manager who is, is fondly thought of in the coaching world. But Newcastle are in dire straits, absolute dire straits. And we said this on the podcast a few weeks back. We've said it a number of times that Newcastle have been linked with this player. They've been linked with Mbappe, etc., etc., etc. And I said, I think, at that point when we were talking about those rumours, that there's still seven games to go between the start of December and the new year. Seven games. 
you know, some teams have had nine games in December, those teams that are in European competition. Now, it might look like Newcastle is three points from safety, six points from safety. Oh, it'll be all right. When they get to January, they can make some signings. It might be too late by then. You know, there's games midweek coming up. There's games Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the Premier League this week. There's then games at the weekend. So there's basically three games in the space of seven days. We've had three games in the space of seven days at the start of this month as well, right at the beginning of December. That's not to mention the games that we'll see on Boxing Day and the games that we'll see in between Christmas and New Year and then the games we'll see on New Year's Day. So you're talking about before we even tick over into the 1st of January, Newcastle United could be seven, eight points adrift of safety if they don't, you know, pull their socks up and start getting results. I mean, losing to Leicester 4-0 in the form that Leicester have been in was a real damaging blow to Eddie Howe. That would have smashed the confidence. Um, I know it was away from home. So, you know, St. James's Park has still got that that little element of of maybe support there. And I'm sure that the, the Newcastle fans will support Eddie Howe and the players wholeheartedly. But had that come at St. James's Park, I just wonder how much uh, that would have deflated the atmosphere and knocked the atmosphere at, at that ground. But I don't think Steve Cook is someone who is is the answer to, to Newcastle United's problems. I think when it comes to conceding goals, that's always been an issue in Eddie Howe's teams. I think during his time as a manager in the Premier League, his Bournemouth teams conceded more goals than any other side. I think they were conceding upwards of 60 goals at one point when he was the manager of Bournemouth. And you're never going to stay in the Premier League, or at least you're never going to be in the top 10 conceding 60 goals in a season. It's just it's just not going to happen. So, you know, that is an issue that Eddie Howe has had follow him as a manager in recent seasons, particularly when he was at Bournemouth, of course. And hopefully it doesn't follow him to Newcastle. But, you know, Steve Cook... You know, for the for that price with Bournemouth where they are at the moment under Scott Parker looking to get promoted to the Premier League, he's one of their key defenders. If Newcastle wants him, they're going to have to pay money for him. But the problem is now that everyone knows Newcastle has got money. Every single club in the world knows that Newcastle United are the richest team on earth. So they're going to get rinsed for any player they go for. And it's just an interesting situation with Newcastle. Um, how damaging is that defeat to Leicester? Because, you know, we can talk about who they need to sign in January, but I, I think that's immaterial even now, 16 days from the January window. I think that's that's immaterial even now because there's so many games between now and that 1st of January date. If Newcastle don't start picking up points, it doesn't matter who they sign in January because they'll be in the championship next season. I think the really interesting part of the story is the fact they have been priced out of this move for James Tchaikovsky because does that indicate that A, they're just not going to be taken for mugs, that even though they're going to have this Newcastle United tax put on all their transfers from now on, they're not prepared to spend that little bit extra B? Does it mean that James Tchaikovsky's still being labelled with this £37 million price tag that he had back a couple of years ago when West Ham were one of the teams chasing him? Or C, does it mean that Newcastle just don't have the same amount of money that maybe the fans are expecting them to invest in playing staff? Maybe it's going to be a more measured approach from Newcastle as we go forward. The other player that's being linked, Joel, with Newcastle at the moment is Aaron Ramsey, who apparently could be released by Juventus. Newcastle and Everton are both interested. Could cost £42 million, not in fees, but in wages, do you think Newcastle will have this risk going forward as they look to recruit players where they're ultimately going to become the new Everton in terms of they're just buying players who have a history with other clubs rather than players that can necessarily improve the playing squad they have. They kind of rely on picking up the rejects from Juventus and Manchester United, etc. Yeah, I remember discussing this on the other podcast with Marley just about how these bigger clubs like Barcelona, Juventus, always end up selling their outcasts to the likes of Everton and to the likes of, you know, the mid-table Premier League clubs who think that, you know, they've been at a top level with them clubs, so they must be able to reach a really high level or they have the capability to reach a high level. But I think with the likes of, for example, Aaron Ramsey and you've seen with uh, Everton where they've got Yerry Mina and um, Andre Gomez where they pay crazy money for those guys. Like, these are players who although they did play for Barcelona and the likes of Juventus, just because they play for them clubs doesn't mean that they were actually playing at that level. Um, there's a reason that these clubs get rid of these players and more often than not, it's because they're not at the level that is required um, and typically they don't end up reaching that level even when they move on. It's very far and few between. Um, obviously, at least with Aaron Ramsey, he's done it in the Premier League, which is kind of a, a plus, but that was two or three years ago now. 
Um, he's a very different player. He's in his early 30s. Um, he's not getting a look in at Juventus at all, despite the fact that, you know, in his debut season, he was becoming pretty pivotal player in that side, but it's just not happened for him in the last couple of years. Um, but this is the situation Newcastle are in at the moment. They, like Niall said, they're a victim of their own success in a way, not in terms of success on the pitch, but in terms of success off the pitch where every single club will add another couple zeros onto any kind of little add-ons and fees. And that's the way they're going to have to go. Of course, they can afford it. But I've said all along that this Newcastle takeover will only be a success if the recruitment is a success. And I'm not sure if they've even hired a sporting director yet. I'm think, I'm pretty sure they're still on the search for it. But I think that's probably going to be their most important signing because as we've seen with Marcel Brands at Everton, um, and then on the flip side, as we've seen with, for example, Monkey, who was at um, Sevilla, you can have two sides of the coin. You can either have one who absolutely washes your money down the drain and you've got nothing to show for it, or you've got someone who can put plans in place to actually have a sustainable approach. Um, and I think that that sign is going to be pivotal. But yeah, with Aaron Ramsey, I mean, he's an upgrade on what they've got at the moment. I'd rather have him in there than John Joe Shelby. Uh, but I think the defence is something that needs to be improved on massively. That's where they should be looking to really put all of their money behind. For the record, I think Aaron Ramsey's a superb player. I just think Newcastle United would be getting him three years too late, unfortunately. That is it for Football Social Daily today. Make sure you've clicked subscribe so you get the next episode as soon as it's ready. If you've not got a subscribe button wherever you're listening to your podcast, you've probably got a follow button or something like that. So make sure you click that. Like I say, we have shows coming at you right the way through Christmas, including a few specials which are not to be missed. But Joel, Niall, thank you very much. And we'll see you next time for Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.